week of September 27th, 2009, this is Showbiz Sandbox, Episode 22, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Los Angeles, I'm Karen Woodward. And in New York, I'm Michael Giltz. Karen, of course, can be found on Industry Nexus. And Michael, you're all over the place, including the Huffington Post and the New York Daily News and MichaelGiltz.com. I'm on Celluloid Junkie. Enough with the plugs there because we have a huge show today, cram-packed with guests. We're going to have independent producers Ted Hope and Christine Vachon on later. We're also going to have a lawyer named Jonathan Handel who has a blog called Digital Media Law. He's going to be explaining the ramifications of all of these SAG and WGA and DGA elections that recently occurred. But first, we should probably get the box office out of the way, as we do every week. Absolutely. I saw four movies this weekend. Um, uh, but the number one movie of the week was one I saw last weekend, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the very good animated 3D film. It made uh, $24.6 million this weekend. It had a great hold. Cost $100 million to make, but it's made $60 million and it looks like it will be a solid success. Um, number two was Surrogates, the opening and closing Bruce Willis sci-fi movie. That made $15 million. It was just a very poorly reviewed sci-fi movie. It felt like a rehash of every other sci-fi movie that came out this year, like Gamer. And the really big disappointment for me was number three was Fame, which made $10.03 million this weekend. Uh, I saw this movie, and it uh, came out about 29 years after the original film, and it feels more timid and more safe and more and more uh, banal than uh, even the TV series. It's just a, a remarkably timid, odd little movie. Uh, did, uh, did Karen, did you see it? No, because you told me not to. <laughs> I, I really wanted to. I, I loved the Fame movie. I loved the Fame TV show even more. I was on the set for this one day for the for the latest fame, and uh, I was so excited for it. And uh, you told me not to bother, so I was like, "Well, I always trust your taste, so it's going to be Netflix for me." I think. What what day of the uh, filming were you on the set for? The one where they sang they sang songs that that day. Yeah, they sang. <laughs> no, they were in like a coffee house or something. Well, at least that's where <laughs> it was shot. I, I didn't actually see them shooting it because I find that really actually rather dull. I was there because of one of the clients. One of, one of my clients at the time was, um, is in the movie, Anna Maria Perez de Tagle. And, oh, my God. How uh, many names three was times that? Fast. How many and, names uh, was in that name? What? How many names was that? <laughs> Her first name is Anna Maria, and Perez, I guess, is a middle name, and de Tagle is the family name. So okay. it's Anna Maria Perez de Tagle, a very sweet girl, and uh, – well, my friend Joe Newmeyer, who reviews films for the New York Daily News, singled her out as one of the two or three people that he thought was a standout and could uh, have success. Though he, he was fairly kind to the film. He gave it three stars out of five, which is a fairly middling review, but, but not a slam. Um, she was fine. A couple of the kids were fine. Uh, I liked Asher, Asher Book, who was, the, uh, who was the young hottie Marco, who had a lovely singing voice. And there was a, a rapper who, of course, had his little sister gunned down in a drive-by shooting when he was a little Oh, boy. but of course. <laughs> of course, you know. Uh, there was a good string of adults in the movie. B.B. Newworth, Kelsey Grammer, Charles Dutton, Megan Mullally, Debbie Allen. It just, it was literally timid and tame it, 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 it could have played it's less gritty than the tv series i mean these kids are the most naive dumb kids imaginable there's one kid who drinks a little bit and she gets drunk and throws up and then in class she says i'm never gonna do that again yes it's like an anti-drinking message in the movie you know kids today are so savvy they have agents when they're 12 and they're you know they're they're so savvy and smart these kids were the most naive stupid kids they had all the usual stuff that you would suffer 50 years ago, if you were a naive new kid in Hollywood, the casting couch, and all done in a really timid, superficial, it went by so fast, it was freshman year soft, it totally mimicked the original, it was lamer, it, it just had nothing going for it. So what you're saying is, this one is, is one to skip, fame, I'm, the remake. I'm going, I'm going, we're going on too long because we were excited by it, you know, it was, a, it's such a, it's such a no-brainer, a remake of fame in this day and age should have been so easy and uh, they, they blew it in every possible way. Even the poster is ugly. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's hard, it's this purple fame, it's hard to see and read and it's just a, yeah, it's just no, a disaster on every level. Yeah, MGM um, disaster. And, the, and then the informant uh, held okay in a second weekend, 6.9 million, it's made about 20 million. It was a very inexpensive movie to make uh, and I think it is very fun. 
Tyler Perry's in at number five with point four point seven million. He's making forty five million off his latest Medea film. Pandorum was another new movie that opened. It's another sci-fi movie starring Dennis Quaid and Ben Foster. Completely just dropped, you know, just dumped out there. It seems to have gotten okay reviews for what it is, but, you know, it's coming and going. And then Love Happens, Jennifer's Body, Nine, and at number 10, Inglorious Bastards, which is now at $114 million and uh, continues to gross a lot overseas as well. I'm just really happy that Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs held so strong. It only dropped about 19%, which is really, really good. It's it's doing quite well, and I think for Sony, that's a, that's a good sign that they're finally getting into the family entertainment business or family film business. Yeah, they have to do more than one every four years. And uh, next weekend, I think, there's, there's a Toy Story and Toy Story 2 come out in 3D, that reissue for two weeks. I think that's the first roadblock for uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs as far as another 3D film trying to uh, take away its thunder. Yes, next week we'll be reporting that a film that's over 10 years old is the number one film in the box office. I don't know about that, but it's possible. Well, before we go on to the Roman Polanski news, the big Roman Polanski news, which of course should be our lead story, we have to get our guests on the line because we did say we'd call them at one thirty. Terrific. Yeah, let's get them. Well, as I dial up our two guests, I probably should introduce them. Recently, there's been a great amount of debate on the internet um, from the likes of Ann Thompson, who's been a guest on this show, and Roger Ebert, regarding the state of the independent film industry and independent filmmaking. This all started after the Toronto Film Festival ended recently with only one film being picked up for distribution. Joining us today, we have Ted Hope, whose profile on his blog reads humbly, I am a filmmaker living in New York City. I have produced about 60 films, and up until a year ago, I thought I would make at least 40 more. Well, that's a huge understatement, given that he has produced films for the likes of Ang Lee, Michelle Gondry, Hal Hartley, Todd Solondz, Ed Burns, Ted Field, Tamara Jenkins, and the list goes on. Mr. Hope has produced far too many films to list here, but a few you might recognize are In the Bedroom, The Ice Storm, Eat Drink, Man Woman, The Brothers McMullen, American Splendor, 21 Grams, Happiness, and The Savages. His production company, This Is That, has produced more than 17 films since it was founded in 2002. But now Mr. Hope writes in his profile that our world has changed and so has the film industry. The old ways of doing things no longer apply. We'll be discussing his blog post on trulyfreefilm.blogpost.com in just a moment. Also joining us today is Christine Vachon, who is an independent producer based in New York. She has produced an astounding number of independent films, including Todd Haynes' Poison and Far From Heaven, Larry Clark's Kids, John Cameron Mitchell's Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Todd Solon's Storytelling, and Kimberly Pierce's Boys Don't Cry. For the past 14 years, Christine Vachon has been running the production company Killer Films with Pamela Koffler. The Museum of Modern Art actually presented a retrospective of the company's work in 2005. She has written two books, Shoot to Kill in 1998 and A Killer Life, How an Independent Film Producer Survives Deal and Disasters in Hollywood and Beyond. That was published in 2006. Both are available on Amazon. We'll place links to them in the show notes. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Now, Ted, you wrote a very provocative piece in, and I I say that in, in a good way, called 18 Actions Towards a Sustainable, Truly Free Film Community. What was the impetus for writing that piece? <laughs> really just wanted to write a good blog post. No, no. Uh, in, in all honesty, it kind of came about um, through some correspondence I had with a friend over Facebook who had, uh, used to be in the, the film business and had gone back to school. And his PhD was on sustainable communities. And he commented to me how a lot of the language that I was using in, in my blog posts and so on was very much the, the same language that, that that they used in their field. Christine and I talk, talk a lot, um, comparing notes about the state of the industry and um, how hard it is for producers to survive. And I, I know I hear the same as I'm sure she does from independent directors the, these days, that it's not a, as easy as it, as it once was, and it never was easy. But but it's downright hard these days. And trying to think through some of the steps that could uh, change that so that when somebody puts their foot in the, the water, they know that they'll still be swimming in that same pool 
you know, 15 or 20 years from now. Yeah, you said that you were talking um, f- young filmmakers off the ledge recently. Um, and, I, you know, I kind of thought, well, hasn't it always been difficult to make an independent movie? When was it ever easy to make an independent movie? And aren't you always talking young independent filmmakers off a ledge? You know, I think if they're on the ledge, we should let them stay there. Honestly, they don't. Have, I mean, if they're really on the ledge, they, you know, they don't. They may not have what it takes. Although I would say the reason I find them is because I'm standing on the ledge myself. Um, but but there's there's real truth. I, I mean, I, I think that any time that uh, you you try to figure out what it is that will make a indie film get made, you know, a big part of it is somebody that is hungry and desperate enough to really do whatever it takes. And sometimes it is that leap into the void uh, where you just don't know what the next steps are and you may end up falling hard, but sometimes it's precisely that leap that gathers enough momentum to get your movie made. Well, I mean, but I think, but I think what it really is too is a lot of these filmmakers are, are, want to tell stories they've waited their whole life to tell. So they're very, very passionate about what they're trying to say. Now, Ted, some of the, some of the, uh, points you make were, I'll just start off with Mentor, which is the first one. You wanted indie pros to, who have been working for at least five years to turn around and mentor some people trying to break into the industry. You also want people to curate, to basically see good films and then go out there and tell everybody about them. Something that kind of uh, got a few comments was your point on providing information that effectively the film industry should have a hive mentality, and we should all be sharing information about what works, what doesn't work, the shortcuts uh, that that work. Somebody wrote uh, the do it with others model feels challenging because every indie right now is like an orphan on the street fighting for its life. It's more difficult to be altruistic when there's a constant struggle to promote your film and pay bills. And that was from a comment on your blog. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds, uh, it does sound very idealistic um, in this particular cutthroat industry. It's not a coincidence that Christina and I are on the call together. You know, I feel that in New York, it's always been a very collaborative uh, approach to getting our movies made. We, we, along with other producers and filmmakers, you know, frequently share information of, you know, what, what crew are good to work with, what financiers are good to work with, what vendors are good to work with, new deal structures, new buyers, all of that information. And it's been a, a fairly closed network, but a very generous network for a, a, a long time. But in this, uh, you know, I think it's safe to say that, you know, in a world where there's no real acquisition for films in the U.S. and the foreign markets have collapsed, you know, substan- substantially, probably pretty close to 50% of where their values what were two years ago, um, you have to start looking at, at different formulas. And the thing that's really been, you know, shocking to, to me is how much information is still kept close to the vest and how much uh, a few people seem to, to know. And perhaps if instead of trying to just to, to make their own film, they uh, turn some of that information to others and help them get their their films made, they would be strengthened in the process. Shouldn't more filmmakers be sharing all that they used, all that they learned with each other precisely for that real kind of do it with others, you know, approach. Lance Hammer with the film Ballast after he won Sundance, you know, chose, you know, in light of, instead of taking a a 20-year license for a small percentage of his budget um, from, you know, one one buyer, um, instead chose to take it out on his own. And he learned a great deal, and and he was, you know, fairly vocal about what he didn't know and where the mistakes were. And hopefully the next person that chooses to go that route will be able to gain from it. But unless we start really sharing that information and really encouraging our friends to see the movies that, that, that we love, it's not going to change. There's no shortage of great talent out there working right now. Um, but th- there is a uh, bottleneck in getting those movies seen by people, and we have to figure out what else we can be doing. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Roger Ebert wrote a piece 
that basically was bemoaning the state of the independent film industry, as did Ann Thompson on IndieWire. And one of the things that Ebert points out is that basically the internet really isn't helping, that the people that are on the internet are all writing about studio films. And he points out that Spike Lee's last film, Passing Strange, had 21 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, whereas the studio movie he made before that actually had, I think, 120 reviews. Indie music has Pitchfork, and tons of music and MP3 blogs are promoting independent music. But where is that in the film world, and can that model work? Christine, you should talk about Mastify. Well, I, but one thing I want to say is I, I was really struck at Toronto this year that um, that all the critics only wrote about studio movies and that there was no sense of discovery there. Uh, I, you know, I, I was surprised that critics who in the past I felt were like scouring the theaters there to find some, you know, some gem that they could write about weren't even bothering. They were just writing about George Clooney and, um, and all the big movies that were there. What Ted was just talking about is Mastify.com is a, um, an initiative that uh, Killer launched with Red Icon. And it's a transparent film community where people, you know, gather online to look at each other's pitches, um, to, you know, give each other advice. And what Killer does is hold contests every few months that kind of galvanize everybody around certain projects that we can then, um, you know, show, uh, you know, ha- show very transparently how they're cast, how they're crewed up, et cetera. And the question is, you know, it's the talent there is amazing, and it's been a lot of fun, but we haven't really figured out where to take it from here. Well, do you think there's a, a, a site out there that's curatorial in nature that's promoting unheard of or underappreciated films? A- a- absolutely. In fact, I started one. It, it was the Pitchfork model that got me so that got me so excited in that. Um, you know, Pitchfork, I guess, was originally started by a couple students out of Madison, you know, and I've heard it said now that it's the most influential tool for the music buying public. And originally all they covered was independent music. And it's really hard if you're if you're an indie film lover to even know what film from the film festivals you should download or to to um, rent from Netflix or however you you get your movies because that information is really in short supply. And I had pitched that idea for for years to different investor groups as something I thought could really take off and um, nobody was doing it. So with with, uh, a few friends, namely uh, Corbin Day and Michael Tully, uh, we started a site called Hammer to Nail, which reviews only under $1 million American narrative. And we only run the positive reviews because there's certainly enough uh, negative information out there. And it's really looked at as a, as a filter and a guide of which films um, are worth your while to, to check out. You know, in all the years that I go to film festivals and, and, and just watch tons of movies, each year it feels like there were only maybe three or four uh, filmmakers new filmmakers a year that I would spot that I felt would go on to do a significant body of work. But last year, I saw over 18 such filmmakers. You know, that's not just a, a minor change in the way things are done. You know, that's a seismic shift. And, you know, hopefully we'll start to see a lot more of those. But unless we really start saying, if this is the type of culture we want, type of films we want, what do we do to get these movies seen unless we start taking responsibility for some of the discovery process, some of the filtering process, frankly, some of the promotion, marketing, distribution process, we all will be deprived of it. Well, both of you, uh, Ted and Christine, have been innovating your entire careers and you've been mentoring people your entire careers. Um, I'm just wondering if this is a dire period or whether there's been a, a real shift in the industry. Uh, maybe it's com- comparable to the newspaper industry where it's not just a recession. There's literally been a sea change and it's never going to be the way it was before. Uh, at Toronto, we saw just one film get picked up. We've seen the overseas market collapse and we've seen the gold rush of DVD sales come back down to a level, uh, a, a lower level where it'll probably maintain rather than the 
15, 20 billion dollars a year. So, Christine, is this just another, you know, difficult period for independent filmmakers where they have to scramble and come up with clever ideas to get their word out? Or is, has there been a real change in the industry and it's uh, it's changing in fundamental ways? You know, look, I mean, this the industry, of course, it's a real change. But I think um, I think we've already gone through several several big changes since I started working in film. And we've, you know, we've managed, we've managed to survive. I think, I think one key thing is, you know, flexibility. I think television is becoming more and more interesting to me because I feel that as uh, movies are becoming more risk averse, uh, television is becoming less risk averse. And I'm finding some of the most interesting stories and writing and, and risk-taking on the small screen. And a lot of filmmakers have to get over their snobbishness about it. Are people still snobby about television? Uh, there's not as many as you'd think. I mean, I get on the fo- I'm on the phone with agents about it all the time. And there's a lot of actors are, are terrified that once they, take, once they take that step, there's no going back for them. Well, now you, you talk about a sea change, certain, and Michael, you touched on the fact that the financing models have changed, and Ted, you did as well. I mean, it started off with video sales, uh, independent filmmakers being able to finance their films with video sales, and that moved to foreign pre-sales, which, Ted, you mentioned dried up, and that, of course, brought on gap financing, and then there was some insurance money in German tax shelters, and then finally hedge funds. What is the next funding model? Has it shown itself yet? Have people found it? What do you think it's going to be, Ted? I, I think it's no simple thing. I, I'm really excited to 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 you know take take a uh, step into the whole crowdfunding mode. I think there's tremendous potential and lots of uh, good new startups in, in that that I think have some re- really effective tools, and we're going to start seeing those come out online in the near future. And when you think of certainly something that ha- a film that might have a uh, very specific audience, either because of its message or or subject matter. The potential for that is really great. But what really gets me excited about crowdfunding is not just the fact of, oh, you know, people will contribute, you know, a large group of people might contribute lots of little bits of money, but actually what that process is, that uh, it, it really is about building a community. You know, it, it's not so much that, that so many people contributed to the budget of the age of stupid. That's the exciting story. The exciting story is what they do afterwards, how they also take it upon themselves to, to bring people to see it, how they feel uh, a, a real sense of ownership. But, but I think what also gets me even more excited than those models is the fact that of we'll have a whole new bunch of outside influencers. The, the, the film community has, has been a, a very closed set for a very long time. And, you know, as revolutionary as I, I still feel, you know, independent film is, it's in dire need of a revolution within that. Uh, and hopefully it won't be akin to the cultural revolution and banish some of the old guard to the fields, but it definitely needs, uh, it, it needs, it needs some folks to, to come aboard and show us, uh, some, some new ways of thinking, because I, I think we've, uh, you know, we're not seeing the forest for the trees anymore. Well, do you think there's going to be a big rash of micro-budget films, much the way in the music industry, because recording became so inexpensive, people were, were recording gold records in their in their basements? Do you think the same thing is going to be done in the film industry? Christine and I recently were at uh, James Seamus's uh, 50th uh, birthday party, and there I, I ran into Michael Barker. And I said to him that I, I really felt that we were on the verge of kind of the golden age of micro-budget films. All, all the signs are there. Definitely a price point below, below $300,000. You know, and the appeal of owning your film 100% you know, for all the time uh, and the potential for recouping that style of budget through new media uh, tools uh, I, I think that we'll, we'll see a lot of people working in that uh, in that range. We we have to get away from that model of one film at a time and and really look at the, the long range needs of each movie to you know build an audience 
and to uh, bridge an audience from one work to the next. So filmmaking is not a one-off business anymore, but like the music industry, is much more of an ongoing conversation with one's fans. And that requires filmmaking, filmmakers to take responsibility for other steps of the process. And I, that is a, a mind shift that a lot of people aren't quite yet willing to make, unfortunately. Christine, you've got a string of uh, movies that are in development or filming right now or in post-production. Do you see any? Do you feel like you're going to be moving into micro-budget films, or does that seem something more like for people who are breaking into the industry? I, I don't think I can. I mean, I think that you know, there's it, it really is for people who are, you know, who who have a little bit more, you know, who are starting out and are hungrier. And we're kind of killer as an entity. I mean, we 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 can executive produce those movies, and we've been doing some of that. But I don't see us really moving into the exclusive production of movies under $500,000. That doesn't mean we won't encourage them and help them get made. I once heard an acquisitions executive on a Sundance panel explain that micro-budget movies under $500,000 or even under a million dollars were unmarketable because audiences have grown used to a higher production value. Is there any truth to that, Christine? I think that that was true for a while. I think that... The, the movies that, that Ted and I started out making were were very small, but they were so fresh and original and often were speaking to underserved audiences that they were forgiven a lot of their lack of production value or rough production value. Then, you know, it, it became, it became I, it probably did become a little harder for uh, an audience to sit through a black and white film, for example, or a movie where the sound wasn't terrific, which are movies, I mean, I made a lot of movies like that when I started. But now, I think the pendulum is swung the other way, because the only thing that's going to get an audience to see your movie is, again, if it is a largely, you know, original voice you know, that is speaking to, to an audience that feels that it's never quite been spoken to before. Well, now, David Poland, has, uh, who is a journalist, he has said that studios effectively killed the independent film industry by getting into that business to begin with and then ultimately dumping it. Is there any truth to that? I mean, I think that they, you know, I, I think that what they did was they, they raised the stakes of the kind of, you know, the kind of box office that w- that was, you know, considered a success for a so-called art house or independent film. And, you know, what they basically, most of those art house divisions, you know, what they were really trying to do was make movies cheaper because they could say they were, you know, quote, independent. You watch them because of the corporate pressures of bottom line and, you know, profit margin and all of that. You watched over the last 15 years, uh, most companies uh, move to one form or the other of, you know, saturation marketing. Either they have a limited number of releases and they take those releases on a pretty wide basis trying to talk to all of the, the, the people all of the time. Or they have a wide number of releases and they're throwing it against the wall, uh, seeing it, what will stick, and hoping that the crowd will, will determine what they like best and, you know, essentially managing their, their costs. And both those approaches, I think, neglect what allowed, you know, independent cinema and art cinema to historically gain its foothold and, you know, really develop a community. And it's precisely that word, community. Um, and that, that's what I was trying to address in that, that blog post on Truly Free Film, which, which I think there's tremendous potential when we go back to the, the, the core things that, that um, allow people to, to talk about film, to feel an ownership, a sense of identity you know, with, with a film. Well, we appreciate you both joining us today. It'll be interesting to see how the industry unfolds, and we look forward to checking in with you from time to time to see if there are any updates. Please do. Thank you. Well, that was interesting. They talked about micro budgets. I happened to see a movie this weekend called I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell, which Uh. has uh, one of the actors from uh, Gilmore Girls in it. And uh, this movie was shot on digital video, and it was so ugly. The entire film, I could not relax. I mean, if it was good, maybe it would have overcome that. But it was so cheap looking and so awfully lit and so just ugly 
that it really was not enjoyable to look at even even a little bit. It was just uh, you know, you just can't get away. You I think as prices come down, you'll be able to make good-looking movies on digital video, but this is, you know, these are some decently named people in it and still it was such a uh, such an ugly-looking film that it was a little surprising. So you you think production values still definitely matter. Absolutely. I mean, you you know, you, if you can be really good, you can overcome it. But and I think you're seeing better looking digital films like Ballast was probably shot on digital. It was certainly very a very interesting um, uh, looking film. It's a terrific looking film. Uh, if you've got an ugly film, that's you're re- really raising the barrier high. You're making it a lot harder on yourself. Well, I was very grateful that both Christine Vachon and Ted Hope could join us as somebody who went to film school in New York at NYU. They are legends. And so I was quite happy that they agreed to join us. I was at Toronto and I did cover a fair number of independent films. I saw a Korean film I really liked called uh, A Brand New Life and this uh, independent film about a uh, illegal immigrant trying to get into America called Northless. And I saw Dogtooth. Uh, I got yelled at for not seeing the well, big Well, you're Hollywood following movies. one of Ted's 18 different actions, and that is to broaden your horizons, to migrate mm-hmm. effectively. Speaking of migrating... I know that's this a really bad transition. I probably shouldn't mention the transitions. A fascinating yeah, these segue. segues. I put, they're probably <laughs> much better when I don't actually point them out. But I was going to say yes. that Mr. Polanski was migrating to Switzerland, at least for a couple of days, <laughs> as he attended a film festival in which he was being honored. Unfortunately for him, he was taken into custody by Swiss officials on a... Uh, a warrant that was issued by the United States. Of course, he was arrested in 1977 for having sex with a minor, a 13-year-old girl in Jack Nicholson's house. I don't know why every time you say that, you have to say in Jack Nicholson's house, but the director is now 76 years old. Of course, he is the filmmaker behind Rosemary's Baby in Chinatown and the pianist for which he won an Academy Award as Best Director in 2003. The Los Angeles district attorney's office found out that he was going to be attending this film festival in Switzerland, where, by the way, he's been quite often because he has a vacation home there, but they found out he was going to be attending this film festival, and they issued a warrant through the U.S. Justice Department, and Switzerland followed through on it. No, I just completely adore this story. I just can't believe it. This finally happened. It's like, was there somebody in Switzerland who just wanted to make a name for himself and decided that he was going to be the guy that went after Roman Polanski? I mean, I think what happened Because of the movie. The movie came out and brought renewed attention to the fact that he was, you know, escaping justice, and they started to pay attention to it again. They almost made a deal for him to come back to the U.S. and solve this problem legally, but the judge refused, I believe, to not allow – the judge didn't have the right to stop cameras from being in the courtroom, which Polanski was insisting on. And so that deal fell through because it should have been resolved a long time ago legally. But the movie brought all this up again, and so they were paying attention again. People were saying, why is this man not being arrested? And I think the U.S. finally just said, oh, he's going to the film festival. They sent over yeah. the warrant. And Switzerland doesn't have a choice. You know, you can't just ignore – you know, just because you think the guy's talented or nice, you can't ignore the warrant out for his arrest. Oh, I totally agree. In fact, when he won the Oscar and everybody like stood and they gave him a standing ovation, I was disgusted. I don't care that his victim forgave him and wants to put it all behind her. I don't care. The guy, he fled the country. He should be back here. We should put him in jail. I don't care how talented he is. Michael, the film you're referring to is called Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired. It was a 2008 documentary by Marina Zenovich, and you might recall, Michael, that when we were in Cannes in 2008, Lila Yacoub, the producer, and Tanya Koop, the cinematographer, stayed with us in a very small apartment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, and, we're, and, we, and we know the director, Marina Zenovich. She's a, a good friend of a friend of ours. Yes, we should try and get her on. I have to say, uh, if you haven't seen the film, Karen, you should, because I thought I sort of knew the story and that it was, you know, some girl who was underage, but probably consenting and blah, blah, blah. And actually, the movie is very fair. It, 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 but, you know, if you walk away from it thinking, well, Polanski is kind of a pig, but that given the, the times and what normally would have happened, uh, this should have been resolved legally a long time ago. So it doesn't make Polanski look like a good guy by any stretch Oh, no, of I've seen it. In fact, but it's it, very pro-Polanski, oh. and you finish seeing this movie, oh, and you I, think, my God, the guy got totally shafted. I mean— I don't think it's pro, though, in the sense that you walk away going, oh— he didn't get shafted in the sense of, I mean, he did a terrible thing. I, I thought much less of him after seeing the movie. I was like, wow, he really is kind of, you know, awful. And, you know, he's just a parade of underage girls that he seduces and drugs and has sex with. 
Yeah, so, no, he's a scumbag. There's no doubt about yeah. that. But yeah, he definitely got he had he had fulfilled all the obligations of what normally would have happened in those cases. And it should have been resolved, but the judge was, you know, playing games with the whole the whole case because of the attention it got. And let's not forget he did serve jail time already. And he served the amount of jail time as Michael, you 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 said. No, I no, he voluntarily went into a treatment, no, no, didn't he, he? He served a jail Mm-mm. sentence. Mm-hmm. The same jail sentence that most mm-hmm. offenders with similar offenses would have served. Yes, at, at that, that time. time. Really, the problem was was that the public was finding out just how little time people who commit such offenses actually serve. And they were disgusted by that. Now they were taking it out on Polanski. So Polanski in 1978 fled to France and he he never came back. Yeah, the judge ignored the deal made between the prosecutors and the defenders and that everyone had agreed to and that Polanski fulfilled. And he had, Polanski had reason to believe that the judge was going to ignore all that and against any standards of justice, throw him back into jail to make an example. And then because he was annoyed that Polanski was famous and being seen in the news while the trial was going on. Yes, well, the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office has tried to do this before, and every time they've issued a warrant, Polanski would find out about it and cancel a trip. There's some talk, actually, that because of the film, Polanski kind of grew a little bit lax in his travel plans and didn't really worry about traveling so much because he felt like, well, he was older, it was over 30 years ago, and everybody's seen the film and knows that basically I was railroaded. Do we have any basis for thinking that? I haven't read that anywhere, and he's obviously been traveling there all the time, and he has a home there, so I think he's just been behaving the way he's been behaving for the past 30 Um, years. Actually, it was an LA Times source. As new questions arose in recent years about the fairness of his case, the source said Polanski appeared to become more at ease about travel. And how does this source related to uh, him or know I, him? They did not say. It was a source close to him. Yeah. Um, and uh, now, of course, the next step will be, will he fight extradition from Switzerland? If so, it will take weeks, if not months, to extradite. Oh, he's he going definitely. To. He's already announced he's he will. To. Yeah, of course he will. Well, uh, what's interesting, too, is that the laws have changed so much since 30-odd years ago. It, if they do bring him back here, what will he be laws will be thrown against them, the ones that are true now or the ones that were true back then? I think even under today's laws, with the victim coming forward and saying they've reached a settlement and that, you know, the time served already and the agreement between the prosecutor and the defender, that there's no chance he would suddenly get thrown into jail for 20 years. He would be let out perhaps on probation at worst, but it would probably be resolved in a way that would be very positive for him and he'd be able to go back and forth to this country. That's why they almost made a deal for him to come back voluntarily. Speaking of deals in place, another segue, by the way. You can, mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, where do you think I'm going with this? Uh, I don't okay. know. I don't okay. know. Well, I was going to say that on this episode with the new fall TV season having started here in North America, we should play a game called Hiatus or Back Nine. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> Go through all of the shows one by one, not all of them, or at least some of them, and figure out whether it's going to be Hiatus or Back Nine. So it's now, not wait, what, what we mean? would do. Is it what we would do or what they will get? Because almost all of them will get hiatus because that's just the nature of television. Well, okay. We should, we should explain that when you put a, a show on hiatus in the middle of its run in the fall, you're pretty much can- I mean, you're canceling the show. But if you finally get within the first 13 episodes, which is really what a network will buy, 13 episodes at first, try it out, and if it works, they'll order the back nine, the last nine episodes. And so they'll have a full season of 22 episodes. So if you get put on hiatus after you're 13, well, guess what? You're probably not coming back. I was going to say we could start with The Beautiful Life, which was the Ashton Kutcher-produced television show on CW about models. But we don't have to because... Oh, hiatus! Hiatus! Yeah, well, (laughs) yeah, nice guess. They've already canceled it after two episodes. (laughs) I know, I'm kidding. (laughs) I love what Michael Schneider said. He's the TV editor over at Variety. He said this on his Twitter uh, account. He said, we now return Misha Barton to her previously scheduled self-destruction. Ouch. I, I found that unbelievably, I mean, this is sort of the coarsening of society. That is so tacky and awful. She's been in a drunk drive and she's been hospitalized to be observed under psychiatric observation. And he's making casual, it's just, to me, it's like, you know, there's just no limit. You know, these are actual real people. And to me, that was just so cr- – and from Variety, it wasn't even like TMZ or something. It was Variety's TV guy is writing snarky, obnoxious comments about a woman who's fairly unstable and could hurt herself. To me, I just found that just 
reprehensible, and I think Variety should be embarrassed. Well, it was on his private Twitter account, his personal Twitter account. I don't give a damn. He represents Variety. Yeah, when you're on social media, you kind of on social media. Doesn't really I mean, matter he's, if you're he's, super he's making account. fun of her self-destruct. She was just hospitalized under psychiatric care, and he's mocking her. You know, I mean, there's just no lim- limit to what people. And you know, this used to be something you see online by anonymous nobodies, and now it's a guy of variety. You know, it's just there's no limit to it. It's just to me, it's just sad. Well, much like we should get Marina Zinovich on to talk about Roman Polanski, maybe we'll get Michael Schneider on to talk about uh, that particular. Okay, let's play. Okay, let's play. play. Uh, So just to go over the details here about CW before we start, The Beautiful Life, only a million people watched it, and it was so bad that what they're going to do is just show an encore of Melrose Place in the Wednesday 9 p.m. slot. Melrose Place isn't doing very well either, but that's one of their big shows that they launched. They just don't have any hit shows, so what else are they going to show? Okay, so what do you say? Melrose Place, hiatus, or back nine? Oh, back nine. Uh, Back nine. They have no choice. CW has, has absolutely no shows, so they can't afford to cancel too many shows. Plus, they've just hired on Heather Locklear for yeah, no, nothing spread, is you know, but nothing is fine. doing well on that network, so they can they can't really afford to cancel too many shows, no matter how poorly they're doing. It's literally a non-existent network. I, I'm waiting for the network to disappear. Vampire Diaries also on the non-existent network. Back nine. It should be canceled, but it, it'll be a back nine. It's dreadful. Okay, I'm I'm taking note of all this, by the way, so that I can we can come back and review. Okay, let's go to CBS, The Good Wife. Back nine. Uh, no opinion. I haven't seen it, but uh, I think it did okay. This is the, okay. this is the show with uh, Juliana Juliana Margulies, who Chris Noth. It's a it's a one hour drama, accidentally on purpose, which airs on Monday nights and is a half hour sitcom. Hiatus. Um, it's a it's a it's a is that ABC or CBS? It's all CBS. CBS, right? At eight thirty. Yeah, Jenna Elfman. And that's a really safe that's a really safe hammock position, though. Do they have another sitcom to go in its place, or will they just rerun? You know. Big Bang Theory, I think it might get through a full season before they cancel it. I'd say back nine. Okay. I say hiatus. Make a note of that. Oh, yes, I, I made a note. NCIS <laughs> Los Angeles, I'm going to say back nine. But back nine. I, I have biggest hit, of, biggest hit of the year. It is? Biggest hit new show. It is? God, I saw that. Oh, so bad. Yeah, NCIS launched their show huge. It, made, it got like 18 million people. It was a wildly successful launch, and NCIS grew by over last year too. It's just a bizarre, but there it is. I'll tell you, I watched the writing on that show was so horrific. The whole thing was exposition, and they solved the case in like five and a half seconds. Um, it's a you know procedural. So, uh, okay, now this hasn't aired yet. Three Rivers. This is the oh sh- the uh, show hiatus hiatus hiatus. That's terrible buzz. Terrible buzz. Okay, <laughs> l- let's skip over to ABC Cougar Town. Back nine. Back nine. This is, of course, the Courtney Cox vehicle. It wasn't bad. I, I wouldn't watch it regularly, but it was, it was not bad. Yeah, same here. These next two, I think, are going to be back nine. Flash Forward was fantastic. Back nine. I loved it. Oh, I didn't. I was, I'm like, do I have to spend a whole five years watching them piece together clues about what happened? I'm already bored, but it'll be back nine, well, I guess. A, a lot like Lost, this is a show that uh, starts off with this big opening pilot where a lot like lost which looked like lost a lot didn't it like look lost. like it? it was like okay oh plane God. crash for lost you know car crash it was for just a carbon movie. copy that's why i found so tiresome i thought the story was interesting i don't find any of the characters quite so compelling yet but we'll see well the story is about what happens in los angeles to a group of people after the entire earth everybody on it blacks out for two minutes and 17 seconds and while they're blacked out they see what happens to them six months in the future they see what happens to them almost during May sweeps. <laughs> no, isn't it that's amazing? The only thing I liked about the show. Shockingly enough, they got a peek into May sweeps of next year, yeah, so but we this know was all based the prices. On a book, so that date might have been in the book. No, no, April April tenth, two thousand ten. That's just strictly that's just strictly done, so that they'll be peaking for May sweeps. I'm I'm certain of it. But I still think we should take a look in the book and see if that was the date that was what, used in the book. What was the name of the book? Flash forward. How about Eastwick, also on ABC? This is the witches. I gotta say, how Dread- it is dreadful. What's what's the lead into that? I have no idea. So hard to remember nowadays because I watch everything on DVR. It was dreadful. Um, that's CBS, and I'm trying to figure out what what that. You know, you got to remember. I think that's 10 p.m. So it's facing off against Jay Leno, actually, which is down to six million. It's actually ABC. You oh okay, it's ABC, but it's opposite Jay Leno. So that's a, that's one less. Uh, <laughs> One less and thing it's got to be about. expensive. 
It's it is expensive. What about Hank, um, which is the Kelsey Grammer sitcom? Hiatus, hiatus, Hank. hiatus. Uh, yes, that feels hiatus, hiatusy. Um, then, by the way, the book flash forward flashes for twenty one years, so I'm quite certain it wasn't too. Uh, and it was oh, published really? In oh, yeah. wow, that's a huge difference, isn't it? What about yeah. the Forgotten? This is the Christian Slater procedural. Hiatus. Show hiatus. Christian Slater is a show killer, no question. Yeah, he's like the he's like death for your TV show. I watched this show and it was so bad I couldn't watch the end of it. That's how bad it was. I did not care who committed the crime. Um, what about the middle, the sitcom, the middle? Hiatus. Hiatus. I don't know that one. Now that's the uh, woman from Patricia Heaton. Yes, Patricia Heaton from Everybody Loves Raymond. My favorite conservative female um, sitcom star. Okay, now what about this next one? I said these next two are back nine, and I skipped over one. Modern Family. This was a hilarious show. Back nine, back nine. definitely. Back nine, but I didn't like it. What? No, it was it was you know it was just cartoonish already. First episode, it was. It's a half hour sitcom, just, a lot like Arrested Development. Single camera. Ed O'Neill stars in it. And I just don't mm. care about anybody. Yeah, I agree. I, it'll be back nine, but not because I'm watching it. What about Shark Tank, the reality show where your average Joe pitches ideas to CEOs? Hiatus. I don't even want to watch it on cable. Switching over to Fox, the show Brothers. You skipped the Cleveland show. I did skip the Cleveland show. I was going to do it in alphabetical back order. Back nine. Obviously back nine, huge success on its launch. Wait, which one? Brothers or back uh, or? Cleveland. 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 Okay. Now, Cleveland is the spinoff for, of the uh, Family Guy. Brothers. Back nine for Brothers. What is it? No, sorry. No, Hiatus for Brothers. This is the one about That's the, the one football. the one with Jill Mitchell? No, this is the one about the football, um, the former football player. Sounds like a hiatus to me. Now, here's one I oh, wish okay. they'd put on hiatus. Glee. Back nine. Oh. No question. No, back nine. You hate it? Ugh, it's, the writing is so horrible. No, you have to look at it from a different perspective. It's so cheesy and campy. It from, it, no, no. If you think of it as being sort of campy and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, more of a satire, then you think the writing's pretty smart or smartish. I wish I, I, another show I wish I hadn't gotten too cartoonish. I liked Jane Lynch in the beginning. She was really abrasive, but she didn't even realize it. And she thought she liked other people and they liked her. And now she's just this over the top villain who's on I TV agree. saying I, these crazy th- I mean, I, I, she was a good character before, and now it's just. A cartoon, you know. Yeah, she's better when she stuff- plays it straight, which all humor yeah. is better when you play Wait, it straight. Wait, she's the, like, really kind of dykey gym teacher? Yeah. How dare you? Yes. <laughs> That's redundant. You could have just said gym teacher. <laughs> Community, back nine or hiatus? Back nine, back nine, back nine. Uh, I didn't like it, but um, but it's got a good, it's got a good spot. They'll probably stick with it for the season. I'll say back nine. Yeah, and then they'll probably cancel it. Now, this next show should definitely, it has the perfect title because it's yet another procedural medical show. So I guess it's not a procedural. It's another medical show, Mercy. I loved this show. Mercy, stop putting medical shows on TV. I don't care. (laughs) I, I, I have a feeling it would be hiatus, but I wished it was back nine because I loved this show. I'll have to check it out. Well, finally... This show hasn't aired yet. It airs tonight. Trauma, NBC. Hiatus. Um, they've been pushing that a lot. It's 9 p.m. What's the 8 o'clock show? Today is Tuesday? No, today's Monday. So that would be... What's the 8 o'clock show? They've got nothing else. It's a back nine. It's opposite, it's opposite to three and a half, two and a half men, which is hard because that's still doing very strong. I'm going to say back nine. I don't think they have many shows waiting on the deck to, to fill in these slots. You know, they're just not pulling the trigger as quick as they used to. See, I think they're pulling it a lot quicker. Yeah? hmm I, I think they're a lot more often to have shows go full season than they than – they, they just don't have enough backup shows to throw in. They can't do reruns anymore because they just don't work uh, ratings-wise. Heck, I'm wondering if – but I'm wondering if they're going to cancel Heroes. Will that go back nine? I mean, that show dropped another 30% in its season opener. It's so I expensive. I think Heroes will go back nine, and that will be it. What about Jay Leno? Jay Leno is – Back nine, back nine, back nine for two years. He's, that's in his contract. Well, but they can cancel it and just pay him money. They're not going to keep a show it on for two years. Yeah, they have I to. Think I think they don't Jay have Leno's going to make NBC a lot of money or at least save them a lot of money. It's irrelevant whether it's a bad show or not. No one cares. No, it's not, I'm not talking about bad. I'm talking about the ratings. It's down to $6 million, which is what he was getting in late night, which is, I thought, the best you could expect 
I don't think there were tens of millions of people waiting to watch him, but unwilling to watch him at 1130. So he's getting the same audience he got at 1130 at 10 p.m., but it's getting dangerously close to to the uh, no-go point. You know, if he drops to five or four million, the local news people are going to riot. They're going to you cannot have a, a show with a four or five million, six million audience feeding into the local news that will kill them. And that will mean all those local stations will be losing so much money. They'll take hammered in the ratings. Do you know what? I actually think it was a good idea for NBC to do what they did with Jay Leno. I agree. Despite any audience drop off or despite the ratings. And here's why. If they said, well, thank you very much, Jay. You've been the host of the tonight show for 17 years. Good luck with whatever you do next. Well, more than likely, he would have gone to ABC, where he would have competed directly with The Tonight Show. So by offering him that 10 p.m. slot, they took him off the market. And if he failed, more than likely, ABC wouldn't want to touch him. But I don't think NBC was that Machiavellian. I think it was a smart move to keep him there, not just to not have him compete elsewhere, but just to try in the show, you know, eliminate five nights of the week the way they used to do with Dateline NBC or the way, or the way ABC did with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. It's just cheap programming. You know, it's expensive to program all that television. They're not programming on Saturday nights anymore. And if NBC could have gotten 8 million viewers a night and saved in the 10 p.m. hour all that money, it would have been a great deal. Right now, it's looking like a so-so deal. And if he keeps dropping, it'll be a trouble. Speaking of deals, I know we already used that segue today. Um, <laughs> but why not? Uh, I'm moving into inside baseball. We should probably get our guest, Jonathan Handel, on the phone. You may know him. As one of the top 100 lawyers in California, as named by the Daily Journal in 2008, Jonathan Handel is an entertainment attorney at the law firm Troy Gold. He practices in the areas of, of course, entertainment, technology, and intellectual property transactions. He also blogs on these same subjects at Digital Media Law, the Huffington Post, as well as writing guest pieces for The Hollywood Reporter. Welcome, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be with you, Sponey. Um, well, the reason uh, we wanted to talk to you today is because of all of the different elections occurring at SAG, at WGA. I don't think the DGA had any elections. That's right. Uh, the WGA, the um, uh, SAG, AFTRA, and uh, the IA. So, uh, and, no, you know what? The DGA did have an election, actually. They elected uh, Taylor Hatford as uh, as uh, president. So this really is election season in all the guilds. Well, I guess, well, let's start with Taylor Hatford uh, becoming the president of the DGA. What does that mean for the DGA? The reason all of this is important, I should preface, is because for the first time in a long time, the guilds have all lined up their negotiating calendars. So their contracts will all expire at the same time, which means the writer's strike that we experienced a year ago could actually happen with all three guilds, the writers, directors, and actors guilds. Well, let me let me supplement that. They, they were synchronized, or several of them were synchronized, um, a number of years ago, but um, for, I think, probably mistaken strategic reasons, uh, SAG ended up uh, taking a one-year extension or close to one-year extension, which desynchronized them from the writers. And that was one of the causes of the um, lack of leverage that SAG had. Uh, and, of course, the reason we had this year-long stalemate was that the, um, the hardline leadership at SAG at the time really didn't undertake a realistic uh, uh, view of uh, their lack of leverage and of the sort of weak poker hand that they held. The DGA um, has only struck once in its 70-some-odd-year history. So, you know, the election of Taylor Hackford doesn't change that. It, the DGA, one can say, you know, really categorically, is not going to strike in 2011. But the question of SAG, the Writers Guild, and AFTRA, if SAG, I think we have SAG and AFTRA negotiating together, uh, you know, that's really the uh, the question here. The, the IA, the IOTC, the below-the-line workers, uh, you know, won't strike either. And in fact, I don't know that they're, uh, I don't think they're synchronized. So it really is those three, uh, those three unions. Well, now, last week, Ken Howard was elected as the president of SAG. You go on in some detail in your blog on several posts as to what that means for the Screen Actors Guild. Of course, the Screen Actors Guild worked for a year without a contract. Now they have a contract, but it was a very controversial uh, contract and one that Alan Rosenberg, the former president, was uh, all up in arms about and was trying. Basically, a lot of people blamed him for the, the stalemate. And now Ken Howard is the president. What does that mean? Alan Rosenberg is uh, a member of the uh, hardline membership first faction and 
In fact, he and a number of others, including Emory Johnson, who who ran unsuccessfully against Ken Howard, uh, are suing and are still in pro- the process of suing their own union, uh, in part to try to undo that deal. Uh, that's really a losing cause, but it's burning up union money. Uh, Ken Howard is from the um, moderate Unite for Strength uh, uh, faction or party, as the case may be, at the union. But, you know, um, we've got a, um, an interesting situation here, twofold. One is that the Hollywood Board, uh, the divisional Hollywood Board, is still under control of membership first. And uh, that means there really will be quite an opposition government that you're in, you know, shadow government in office. The other thing, though, is that even the moderates have said, when I when I asked their spokesman, uh, that they won't hesitate to seek a strike authorization uh, next go-round if they think it's uh, necessary. And that's because this contract was a compromise that no one in the union really liked, including the moderates. Uh, the moderates said, you know, this is the best we can get, and we need to stop the stalemate. We need to focus on the big-ticket items, which are, uh, you know, uh, TV and theatrical, where the real money is right now. But new media is getting closer and closer. There were a lot of chickens that were deferred um, in the in the spirit of that compromise that are coming home to roost next round. And unless management takes a really realistic and flexible view of negotiation, uh, they're going to push this town uh, management this time closer towards a strike and perhaps a joint strike. Now, management, by management, you mean the studios and the producers. Yes. Yeah, the studios are represented, they, they bargain jointly, they're represented by a group called the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, but uh, it's really the studio heads that call the shots, and the uh, negotiators at the AMPTP, um, you know, uh, follow that uh, follow that tune, uh, essentially. So you've got differences among studios in terms of which are more hardline, less hardline, which prefer to deal with AFTRA, which are still willing to deal with SAG, and the a lot of them fled SAG, and most of the pilots this season, uh, 87% of them were AFTRA versus it's usually 90 95% SAG. So they paid a real price for that uh, stalemate uh, in terms of work for their members and in terms of uh, uh, dues income to the union, which has helped put the union in pretty dire SAG, in pretty dire financial straits. And AFTRA is really more ascendant than they've been in a long, long time. Uh, they essentially were pushed out the door or almost out the door of the joint negotiating room uh, by SAG. They had this joint negotiating arrangement for about 27 years called Phase One. Uh, and after finally, sort of in disgust, completed the um, process and walked out of the room, negotiated a deal separately. Well, now there was some talk a couple of weeks ago that SAG and AFTRA might actually merge again. Yeah, merger has been in the air for quite some time, actually going back to the 60s and perhaps earlier, it turns out. But there have been two attempts in the last decade. They both failed on the SAG side by just a couple percent. They got the last time around, 2003, they got 58% of the vote, but 60 is what's required. And after this point, it said, you know what, until you guys at SAG get your act together, we're not going to keep spending money and emotional energy, you know, on, uh, on trying to merge. There's no chance that there will be merger in the next year. The negotiations start... Actually, in October, there are early negotiations, October of 2010. Uh, the contracts don't expire until mid-2011. Um, and, you know, they'll be preoccupied before then. So the real question is, will these unions be able to get back together in terms of joint negotiation? Um, looking beyond that period, depending on how the joint process goes, if, if that is what happens, uh, you and how the SAG elections go, you will see movement by the moderates towards merger because that's their main campaign plank. It makes sense for several reasons. One is that the members would only pay one set of dues. The second is that it'd be easier for them to qualify for health care because there's an income threshold that you have to meet. And if your income, your, your jobs are split between the two unions, uh, it's much harder to, to reach any given threshold. And finally, um, by merging the unions, it makes it a lot harder or impossible, really, for management, the studios, to play one union off against the other in negotiation, which is what the studios really did brilliantly this last round. With the help of the hardliners at SAG, who really set themselves up for it. Right, and that's kind of why there's this talk of the perfect storm of contract negotiation debacles about to occur, or potentially could occur down the line, 
Well, that, that's right. And then that gets us to the question, sort of the follow-on to what you'd asked, of what's the significance of the election of John Wells over at the Writers Guild as president. Now, he is more moderate than the, can- the other candidate who ran, Elias Davis, who uh, was aligned with Patrick Verone, who was the prior leader who led the guild into the uh, strike. So, in other words, that says that the Writers Guild is moving in a more moderate direction as well as SAG, just as they both moved in a more hardline direction at the same time back in 2005. So the question then becomes, if SAG doesn't like the deal and is willing to take a strike authorization vote, what about on the Writers Guild side? Will they be able to make common cause, or is there uh, tension between those two unions, just as there is between SAG and AFTRA? So it's a, you know, it's a multidimensional chess game, and it's really, this is all just within the unions, and then you get the question of the different studios, what their agendas are, and then how the uh, studios as a whole relate to the unions. Very uh, complicated. Well, and some of the chickens coming home to roost that you spoke of earlier are not only about the payment for work being completed, but also residuals for the airing and, I guess, uh, use of material that was produced possibly years ago. And you wrote an interesting piece this year in The Hollywood Reporter that talked about residuals and how they are essentially broken. Well, that's right. Um, And there are sort of a set of issues. One is new media, um, jurisdiction, uh, upfront compensation, and new media residuals. The second in particular is the DVD or home video residual, which even though that format, packaged goods, is declining, there's still, you know, a number of billions of dollars left in that, many billions of dollars left in that market before discs disappear, you know, presumably altogether, at least for a time period. I think you'll see them, you know, some kind of packaged goods reappear in five, ten years or something. Whatever it is, little glass chips with holograms on them 10, 15 years from now, they'll still be paid under the home video physical media formula, which is very disadvantageous formula to the, um, to the guilds takes 80% of the income off the table before you even start calculating the residual. Now, you know, the overall shape of the residual system, as you, as you point out, you know, is really broken because you've got all these different categories of formulas and they're different in each, you know, medium and what was the original medium that something was produced for, theatrical, free TV, pay TV, et cetera. And then what is the particular reuse you're talking about? DVD, pay, basic cable. There are, you know, many different formulas within each guild agreement, let alone when you add up the formulas across the guilds, some of which mirror each other, but many of which uh, don't. So it's, it's an accounting nightmare, um, and it's really guaranteed that whenever there's new technology, that each side of the table is going to try to shoehorn the new technology into its preferred, uh, you know, model of formula. And so that's what helps uh, drive these uh, strikes. Well, yes, you did say a better approach would be to calculate residuals, quote-unquote, at the wellhead. Uh, In other words, aggregate all of a project's gross revenue from all the platforms, as you just said, and then pay talent a percentage of that. Uh, You say the solution would be simpler and platform agnostic, which does sound uh, quite like it should work uh, in theory. Uh, Right now, with all of these different residual formulas, it's very expensive to administrate, as you point out in your piece in, in The Hollywood Reporter. And you talk about how uh, in 2002, the WGA was receiving 5,000 checks a day for residuals. And you go on about how a residual check is processed by going to the guild and then going to an agent and go, eventually, at some point, getting to the actual guild member. Well, that's right. I mean, it's an absurd system. It's, it's physical checks that are processed in huge numbers. Um, I'm sure the numbers are even larger today and the numbers for SAG, which is uh, union ten times the size of the writers and directors guilds, uh, you know, are going to be even greater. And AFTRA is pretty large as well. So, you know, they've got a, I mean, it's just a, a blizzard of paper crossing the town, uh, flying from one place to the other, uh, and then sitting in, you know, corridors and, and file cabinets and desks before this stuff gets, gets re-keystroked into multiple computers. I mean, it's insanity. Um, you know, and sometimes for a $2 check in the case of SAG. But, you know, in terms of restructuring the whole system in the, you know, residuals at the wellhead, as I suggest, it's a tough road. I mean, these contracts, these collective bargaining agreements are like roach motels. Contract clauses check in, but they don't check out. And they've grown into this sort of barnacle-encrusted agglomeration of, of you know, contract language 
that everyone is afraid to, uh, you know, to restructure. Well, certainly we look forward to checking in with you as time goes on and to find out how, how this will all play out. And we appreciate you joining us here today to help us unravel this whole mystery of the unions and the guilds in the entertainment industry. Well, it's my pleasure as well, and I'd be uh, pleased to come back and um, uh, do what I can to bring a little uh, light on this subject. Thank you very much. Guys, you know, you could have jumped in at any time. <laughs> um, I guess we had a little Skype outage in the middle of that. You guys were gone. You left me to do all the heavy lifting while with Jonathan. It was very nice of him to join us. Thank you, Jonathan Handel. I hope we can uh, talk to him again sometime soon with fewer technical problems. In the meantime, if you want links to any of the stories we talked about on today's episode, you can find them in our show notes, which can be found on our website. Our website is showbizsandbox.com. If you want to email us, you can do so. The email address is dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can comment on the stories we discussed, call us names, tell us how great we are, anything you want. You can even send us a voicemail or give us a call and leave a voicemail. The phone number to do that is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Our website is also where, where you'll find links to all of our social networking accounts, including LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and whatever they're going to invent tomorrow. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each episode of Showbiz Sandbox is by the indie rock group or popular rock group, I don't know what you would call them, Management MGMT. You can visit their website at whoismgmt.com or on MySpace, myspace.com slash MGMT. Karen, Michael, uh, I guess we should thank our guests, uh, Ted Hope, who can be found on any one of a number of blogs, and on Twitter, at Ted Hope is his uh, handle there. Uh, Christine Vachon, who can be found uh, on Twitter at KVPI. I like the way you said her name, Sperling. Vachon had a, had a French flair about it. <laughs> Jonathan Handel, of course, he is at J Handel on Twitter, and his blog is jhandel.com. Michael, you're at michaelgiltz.com, and on Twitter, you're at michaelgiltz. G-I-L-T-Z. Karen, you're kwoody3939 on Twitter. And uh, you're also on Industry Nexus. That's correct. My Twitter account is at Sperling, S-P-E-R-L-I-N-G. I can also be found on Facebook and Celluloid Junkie is the blog to check out. Until next week, play nice. Play nice.